So uh, some of the most remarkable people that you've ever met, some of the most remarkable people I've ever met and, and uh, probably I ever will meet are, are people that we're going to call, um, <clears throat> we call them believe in spite of people. Have you ever met a believe in spite of person? These are the kind of people you meet um, where things in their life um, just to have seemed to have blown up and gone wrong. Maybe they're battling with, with health issues or you know, something in, in their, their life seems to be falling apart. There's finance issues. That, you know, there's, they're battling through a divorce. They're struggling through something. But in spite of what they're struggling, they still believe. They still have this kind of unshakable faith. And, and they're, they're believing in something that, that just seems so radical that, that perhaps for you, it, it, it's something you've looked at and thought, that's, that's crazy. How do I get some of that? Like, my life doesn't go that way. They, they, in spite of this tragedy, in spite of what, what all is going wrong, they seem to have joy and, and they seem to have, have uh, contentment. They seem to have peace, as Paul would say, this peace that passes all human comprehension. Right? It's, it's difficult to even explain. And we look at them and we think, I need some of that. My life doesn't seem very peaceful. My life doesn't seem very joyful. I mean, things seem to be going better, but, but, but in spite of what could be going wrong, they still, they still believe. And my guess is, for, for some of you, that may be why you're in church, that you had a mom or a grandma that felt that way, and it just kind of inspired you to keep with it. For some of you, maybe it's the reason you're here, because you knew someone like that, and you're dealing with, with some of those situations yourself, and, and you're saying, I want to hold on to something that's, that, that could get me through like it's getting them through. I, I want that peace. I want that joy in the midst of these, these circumstances. Well, there's a, there's a guy you may have heard of before. His name's Dr. Francis Collins. Um, Dr. Francis Collins met someone like that in his journey. He was a, a young, um, <clears throat> young doctor, and he was at a hospital in North Carolina, and he ran across one of those believe in spite of people. You may have heard of Dr. Francis Collins because he was kind of put in charge of, of this project that we called, the, the, he was the director of the Human Genome Project. Um, I'm sure there are people here that's going to be able to describe this better than I am, but I'm going to do my best. You might know what a genome is. If you don't, um, we're just going to get everyone up to speed. <clears throat> so he was tasked... With, with basically discovering uh, and kind of mapping out this, with his team the, the human genome. Uh, the genome is an organism's complete set of DNA. Every organism has a genome, and the genome is a complete set of this organism's D DNA. As Dr. Collins was given this assignment to put this, this entire human genome uh, together, there's 3.1 billion letters inside every single one of your cells. I mean, that's just amazing, isn't it? it it's completely remarkable. It helps us in terms of, of tracking disease and how disease is going to affect uh, the, the, the body, it's going to affect families in particular. It's remarkable. Clearly, he, he's a very bright, bright, just a, a brilliant, brilliant man. He's 27 years old. He's at a hospital, and he's, he's doing his rounds. And, and if he, you, know, you know the hospital joke. They, they kind of come by, and they ask you the same questions day after day, and they scribble some stuff on a board, and they, they walk away. I see people look around. If you're a doctor, there's no offense to that. It's just how it goes. Uh, they, they scribble something down and they kind of go on their way. And this happens day after day after day. And perhaps it's because he's in North Carolina, but he tends to bump into a lot of Christians. And, and he, he, uh, he kind of re recounts this, that as he's bumping into these Christians, it just seems that, that, that there are these believe in spite of people, right? They have these diseases that are just horrible and they're attacking their body and they might be able to do something to, to relieve some pain, but there's no cure for it. And, and they still have this, this faith. And, and, it, and it kind of blew him away like, how? Why? Why? Why would you have that kind of faith? He, he wrote a book. It's called The Language of God. And in his book, he makes this incredible statement. He says, if faith is a psychological crutch, if faith was a psychological crutch, it must be a very powerful one. If it was nothing more than a veneer of cultural tradition. Or, or in other words, he, he's basically saying, if, if faith is a crutch, if these people are just kind of believing because of, 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 of a track of belief, because their family believed, because they were, they were just raised to believe, like, 
He, he created this tension, and, and it led him to, to, to ask even what I think is a great question that so many people wrestle with. He said, if that's the way it is, th- then why? Why? Why were these people not shaking their fists at God, demanding from their friends and family to stop all of this talk, all, all this nonsense about a loving, benevolent, supernatural power? Why? Why? If, they, if, it was, if it's just a crutch, if it's not real, why aren't they angry? I mean, at this point, why aren't they shaking their fist and cursing God? Like, look at this horrible stuff. And, and he, he was kind of overwhelmed by this, and he's frustrated. He's doing his rounds one day, as, as he always does, and he's asking the same questions, as he always does. He's scribbling some stuff down, and he comes across a, a lady that he's met many times before, and he knows her faith, and he knows she's one of these believe-in-spite-of people, and he's asking her questions, they're having a conversation. She says, Doctor, I've told you what I believe. But Doctor... What do you believe? I shared with you my opinion. You know how I'm here. What do you believe? And that simple question threw him reeling. He kind of stammered through his answer. He said, well, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. I've never really investigated. Francis Collins grew up with with agnostic parents, so this whole idea of a God and and this belief in a a supernatural power, some benevolent being who would care for you and and watch after you, it just seems completely, to him at least, completely outrageous. He he says this, and these are his words. It's not mine, but maybe these would be your words. Maybe this is how how you would describe your journey. All red-faced, he says, faced with my willful blindness... Faced with my willful blindness, faced with this idea that I've never really looked into it, I've never really researched, I never really have dug into it any further, I I didn't think there was any evidence, so faced with my willful blindness and my arrogance, I began a journey. He decided to see what could be seen. He decided to investigate what, what needed, in his mind, to be investigated. And at the end of his journey, he found that there was more evidence to substantiate the claims of Jesus than there was to not. And Francis Collins became a Jesus follower. He became a Christian. And he followed Jesus all through his life. Even now, he follows. Basically, this is a brilliant man who mapped the human genome, who understand the physical body and couldn't see the need for God. And then he did the investigation and found God. Now, here's the cool thing. Jesus predicted this would happen. Jesus predicted this, and John kind of helped. Jesus basically said, I'm going to give you enough evidence for you to believe. And, and John said, that's exactly what I want to do. I, I want to I help people along the way. I want to help them so that they can believe like I believed. Not because of, of, of just what, you know, some random story, but, but so that they might see what I've seen and they might, they might hear what I've heard so that they could believe like I believed. Not to have believe in belief or, 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 or faith in faith. Right? That's what, as Brian said last week, if you didn't catch last week, you should go back on our website and listen. It's, it was a great message, and he, he kind of left this tension for us that I absolutely love. He said this, he said, Christianity is not about just believing. It's not just believe and believe or faith and faith. It's not. Christianity is not just about <clears throat> just believing or taking it by faith, whatever it is. And John and Peter and James and Bartholomew and all the followers of Jesus, they would say the same thing. They didn't follow Jesus because of faith. And they would say that it's really kind of dangerous. And they would discourage you and discourage me and discourage all of us to just follow Jesus because of faith. You see, they followed because of what they actually saw. They followed because of what they actually heard. And John, in his gospel, he encourages his readers to do the same thing. 
to look into the life of Jesus. He says, I want you to believe. I want you to place your faith in Jesus because of what I have seen and because of what I have heard. Here's how he says it in 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. He says, that which was from the beginning. And in the beginning, he's not talking about Genesis. He's not talking about the foundations of the earth. He's talking about the beginning of the events. The beginning of Jesus coming on the scene and doing something radical that, you know, he came on and he made, the, made these outrageous claims and then did these outrageous things to substantiate his claims. In the beginning, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard. I'm not telling you something that I heard from somebody else who heard from somebody else who heard from somebody else. I'm telling you that which I heard, that which we have seen. I, I saw it. Peter, James, the disciples, th this is what we actually saw. And we have looked we have looked at and our hands have touched. This is his way of saying that after the resurrection, it, this wasn't a mirage, it wasn't a dream, it wasn't a figment of our imagination, that, that, that we had seen him die and we had seen him alive and we had lunch with him. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was different, it was real. This is what we proclaim concerning the word of life, that life appeared. And John would say, I, I think he would say, I'm just a simple man, right? My father's a fisherman, I'm a fisherman. Don't ask me these difficult questions, I don't get it. What I do know is that I was raised to believe in God. I was raised to believe in, in, in Yahweh. And then I saw that this, this life appear. I saw this invisible, mystical, don't ask me questions kind of a God appear in the form of a man. And I believed him and I followed him and I trusted him and he's Jesus. And you can too. We've seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you that which we have seen and that which we have heard. He said, I'm telling you, I want you to have the same experience I did. And I know you can't see with your eyes and I know you're not going to be able to hear with your ears like I did. But I want you to see through my words. I want you to hear through my words. I want you to understand the things that I've understood so that you can make the decision I made, so that you can have a similar experience like I had, so that you could trust and that you could have life. This is the Gospel of John. John's an old man at this point in his life. He, he, he's much older, and at this point, my guess is he probably can't see. He, he definitely doesn't know Greek, and this Gospel came to us in Greek, so I don't think that he wrote this Gospel at all. I think he actually talked this Gospel out. It's almost like he's being interviewed. right? These young people who are coming, becoming Christians and Christ followers, they want to know. He's the last living like, disciple, apostle of Jesus. John, we, we got to know. Tell us your stories. What was it like? What did you see? What did you hear? And as an old man, John begins to answer the questions, almost like an interview, and just kind of goes through these things. I, I want you to know. I want you to know what I saw. I want you to know what I heard so that you could believe and so that you could trust, so that you could know. John's an old man, and he dictates this message. <clears throat> and, and he kind of tells us at the end of his book what his agenda is. Right? He says at the end of his book, he says, and this is in John chapter 20, Jesus performed many other signs. Jesus did a whole lot of things, a whole lot, in the presence of his disciples that were not recorded in this book. He actually says at another point in his, his gospel that there are so many things that Jesus did, it's impossible to have them all kind of accounted in this book. And when he's referring to the book, he's not talking about the Bible. He's talking about his first century document, about what he wrote about the events, about Jesus, about what he said and about what he did. But these things, the things that I've included, the things that we're going to discuss, these things are written that you, they were written so that you would know, they were written so that you would believe. I've done my best to kind of go through the life of Jesus and all my experiences and all the stuff he did to pick out these things that, that, that you need to know because these things will cause you, will help you to believe in what I, what I saw and what I heard. 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that the Jews have been waiting for for a long time, that he is the son of God, that if you believe in the gods or, or, or you believe in the God, that he is the son of that God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And when he talks about life like, like that, he's talking about eternal life. And he's not talking about eternal life like eternal life is this, this event that happens after we die. <clears throat> John and the gospel writers b- b- believed, and this is what, what we believe, that eternal life starts now. Because when you live as if life goes on forever, when you live as if life lasts eternal, you live now very differently. And John said, that's exactly what I want for you. He said, so I, I'm going to pick it out. I'm, I'm going to go through my events. I'm going to go through my life, and we're going to highlight seven signs. Seven signs. These, these seven miracles is what other people call them. But these are seven signs that Jesus gave. We looked at the first one last week. This week, we're going to look at the second one. <clears throat> and uh, if you're reading through your Bible, the header, it, it says, uh, the healing of the nobleman's son. So we're going to look at, at the second one of these signs that Jesus gave, that John records, so that we would know what he saw, and we would know what he heard, and maybe we would believe and have life just like John. So that's the intro. We're all caught up? Any questions? All right. <clears throat> Jesus get, comes on the scene. Last week we talked about this radical event, right? He goes to a wedding. His mom says, son, fix this. You know, there's no more wine. Jesus said, I didn't come to save weddings. I came to save the world. She kind of laughed, shook her head, and walked out of the room. And what does Jesus do? He saves the wedding. <clears throat> it's rumors start to spread, right? This, this guy showed up and did this incredible thing, and, and rumors begin to spread around. And Jesus, he's in, a <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he's in Galilee. He wants to make his way down to, to Jerusalem. And Israel's kind of this, this long nation, right? It's real tall, it's slender, and he's up here, and he wants to go all the way down here to Jerusalem. To, this is like the city, this is the it place, this is where everything kind of happens. And whenever he heads down to Jerusalem, his followers, they get real nervous, they get really anxious because Jesus tends to stir things up. He tends to cause a little bit of trouble, and they head down, and they're always kind of concerned, are we going to make it out alive? Is this going to be the time that he says the thing he shouldn't say that causes them to drive us out and kill us, whatever it is? Sure enough, they make their way down into Jerusalem, and you know, this is right around the time of Passover. He goes into the temple, and this really famous scene happens that you probably heard of. <coughs> this is where Jesus gets angry. He walks in, and he chases out all the money changers because they're charging too much interest, and people are selling pets, or selling animals, rather, for sacrifices. They're selling pigeons, and they're selling you know, lamb and goats and, and, and all these things for sacrifices, but they're all defective. They don't meet the standard that God set for the nation of Israel when you come to worship God. So Jesus is furious, and he, he chases these people out. It's a very kind of hostile scene. It's, it's the first time we kind of see this like righteous anger in Jesus, that he just can't believe what people are doing, making a mockery of his father, of our father, of God. And he chases them out. And when he does, the religious leaders, they kind of come around, and they ask Jesus a question. And, and, and they, they don't ask him, hey, what in the world do you think you're doing? They ask a better question. They say, who in the world do you think you are? And Jesus gives a brilliant answer. And John says, on that answer and on the things Jesus did, he said, I'll never forget that moment. He said, what he did in Jerusalem, all the things he did, many people saw the signs. They saw the, these things that Jesus did. And what did they do? They believed in his name. So they're in Jerusalem, and things get kind of heated. The religious leaders are kind of angry, and Jesus has this conversation with one of the Pharisees, right? this man named Nicodemus, and 
He's telling Nicodemus about being born again, and Nicodemus is, is asking the question, what do you mean being born again? He said, what do you mean you don't know what it means to be born again? You're the religious leader. You're the, you're the guy who's supposed to be teaching this to people. How do you not know this? And Jesus' head's kind of spinning, and Nicodemus is, is kind of overwhelmed by the conversation, and Nicodemus makes his way out, and Jesus is like, things are getting heated. i got to leave. So he leaves Jerusalem, and he heads back, <clears throat> back up to, to Cana in Galilee where things are kind of calmed down. And this is where our, our story is going to pick up. On, on this particular instance, he's up there. Rumors are, are beginning to fly around. People are beginning to get, catch wind that there's this guy who can do this crazy kind of stuff. <clears throat> and this is where the, the text picks up. Uh, once he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and anyone reading the story is like, yeah, I've heard of Cana in Galilee. And John's like, of course you did, because that's where Jesus turned water into wine. That's, that's what happened. Everyone's heard of that. There was a certain royal official whose son lay sick. There was a certain royal official. This was the nobleman. And when it talks about a royal official, this is like a, a, a Jewish nobleman. This is a, a Jewish aristocrat. He, he's a, a wealthy man. And what you, you need to, what, uh, there's a few things I want to point out in, in this story that I think are, are really kind of brilliant. The first is, is that uh, this takes place at Capernaum, right? There's a son who, who, who lays sick uh, <clears throat> at Capernaum. Capernaum is like an eight-hour walk from where Jesus is in Galilee. So if, if this man is just kind of walking, it takes eight hours to get there. Uh, but because he's a rich man, it's probably like a horse ride, like a two- or three-hour horse ride or chariot ride, depending on how many people are traveling with him. It takes about two or three hours to get there. The, the, the second thing that I need to point out is this, that, that as an aristocrat, as a rich man, um, he, he could have just simply sent a servant. He didn't have to go. He, he didn't have to make this journey. Right? He's a rich man. He could have sent somebody else to go for him. This is just my entire speculation, but I think there's some merit to this, and you can take this for a grain of salt. The Bible does this, but this is kind of how I think it went down. That this guy's at home with his, his son who's dying and who's sick, and his wife's there, and they begin to hear rumors about this, this guy, and no one's really sure for where he's from. You know, they've heard stories of Galilee, and they heard stories of Bethlehem, and there, there's all these rumors flying around that this, this guy that has shown up, right? The, the, the son of man, holiness with human hands, and he's doing these incredible things, and, and, and maybe, just maybe, this could be the guy that heals their son because they really can't have faith in, in anything else. <clears throat> so they hear of Jesus, and my guess is the wife hears of Jesus and says, Now, honey, you go down to Canaan and Galilee, and you get this man, and you bring him here. And the guy's like, Seriously? Like, if I leave, I'm leaving you with, with our sick son? Like, what if he dies while I'm gone? I'm never going to see him again? And my guess is, you know, guys, you know this. The finger comes out and she points. Now, honey, you go down to Cana and you get this man and you bring him here for our son. Now, the, the truth is he had a, a pretty heavy decision to make. Do I, do I do what my wife wants and do I find this guy and do I bring him, try to bring him back? Like, well, what if he doesn't come? And what if during that time my son dies and I don't get to see him? I'm leaving this burden on my wife and my family and I could never see my son again. And what does this man do? He heads down to Canaan. He finds Jesus just like a good husband would. He takes a long journey. If he's walking eight hours, if he's riding, it's two or three hours there. <clears throat> he's walking and, and he, he stumbles upon Jesus. When the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, <clears throat> he went to him and he begged him to come and to heal his son who was close to death. He begged him. That... that, that verb tense there is like he threw himself at Jesus' feet and over and over and over and over he pleaded, come back, come with me. 
My son is close to death. My son is about to die. Would you come with me? This was, this was humiliating. In this moment, he lost the respect of, of, of all the people around him, of all the people who thought that he was a nobleman and a rich man. You don't, you don't put yourself below. And he said, no, I, I'm putting myself below. I know Jesus in this situation. In society's terms, I'm above you. But right now, I'm putting myself below you. I know I have more authority and more power than you. But, but in this moment, I'm, I'm, like, I'm submitting myself to your power and your authority because I don't know what else to do. But what's amazing to me is, is this man, as a nobleman, he's probably a Sadducee. There was two religious groups in Judea and Israel at this time. We hear a lot about the Pharisees. They were kind of the opposition to Jesus. These were the, the law keepers, right? They knew the law. They meticulously kept the law. They believed in an afterlife. They, these are the people that had like a tight grip on society. Then there was a group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, these were more kind of intellectual people. They didn't, they, they didn't just believe for, for belief's sake. They thought that everything was, was determined, right? That, that your kids, that if you had kids and where you lived and how much money you had and where you fell in, in society, that all of that was determined, that you didn't even have to pray and ask God for everything because all of that was determined. It was already determined for you. This man, as a noble, was probably a Sadducee. And what's interesting is, is that in this moment... All of, all of his belief, all of his standing, all of his theology, it all kind of took a back seat, right? It all kind of went out to the periphery because of, of the crisis in his family, because somebody he loved was suffering. Now, how many times does that happen to us? We think we know, we think we believe, we think we have, we have the right answers, and then someone we love has a tragedy, someone we love suffers, and everything we believe kind of, kind of goes to the periphery, and, and, and we're desperate. I'll do whatever it takes. I, I, I'm desperate. Would you just, would you come and would you do something? Would you, would you heal my son? Would, would you touch him? Do, it. do the thing you do, Jesus. <clears throat> I'm desperate, Jesus. Would you do something for my son? And, and this man's thinking, there's two options, right? Either I, I can convince Jesus to come with me and my son will live, or Jesus refuses and my son dies. But Jesus had a third option. Now, Jesus' response, at first, it seems very kind of insensitive and very harsh. But what you need to remember is, in this, that's just because we're reading an English Bible that wasn't really written in English. Jesus' response isn't really that insensitive. He's, he's addressing more than the nobleman. He's addressing the entire crowd, his entourage, because people went with him and traveled with him wherever he went. He responds to this man this way. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Like, geez, that sounds kind of harsh, Jesus. But really, isn't he just stating the obvious? He, he's, he's really just saying what's true. He's saying, I'm making some really ridiculous claims about myself. You're not going to believe unless I do something really ridiculous to prove it. I'm saying some outrageous things, and unless, unless I do some outrageous things to substantiate what I'm saying, you're never going to believe me. You're never going to believe that I am who I said I am, that I came where I've said I've come from, that I can do what I've said I'm going to do for you. You, you need to see it to believe it. Right? Isn't that what it always comes down to? Seeing is believing. you got to see it to believe it. And, and then I, I think Jesus is probably thinking in this moment, well, if, if that's really what it's going to take, then then why don't we, like, let's just hit it out of the park. Let's just do something big. Let's do something dynamic. And, and Jesus d does something, and, and he kind of has this, this, this tension with this man that, that so many uh, of us kind of, kind of live in. The man looks back at Jesus again after this response, and he says, Sir, sir, would you, would you come down before my child dies? Jesus, I'm just desperate. Would you just come with me before my child dies? The man thinks either he comes and my son lives 
or he refuses and my son dies. And Jesus says, no, there's a third option. Jesus looks up at the man and he says, I want you to go. Just go. Like, like just get on your way. Just, just go about your business. That's really what, what that, that kind of verb tense means. Just, just go on about your business. You don't have to hurry. You don't have to worry. Just go on about your business. Your son will live. Like just, just imagine that, dads. You're desperate. Your, your, your child, your daughter, your son, they're on, on death's door. And your one hope, your only hope, Jesus, a man. Just keep going about your business. Don't worry. Like, how do you respond to that? This, this, this nobleman, this official, he is, he's put in an interesting position, isn't he? How am I going to respond to this? I don't even know. Like, it's, it's just rumors. I don't even know if this guy can do what he said he can do. But I'm asking him to come. I'm asking him to do something because I've, I've heard these rumors. And instead of coming, he just says, go. I mean, th- there's this tension. And Jesus is really asking this man to do what, what we've all had to do. Right? This, is, this is kind of where we all live. In, in, in this tension. Really, what it comes down to is this is a lifetime that's reduced to a day. Because this is all of our lifetimes where we have to believe based on what somebody else said. Where we have to believe and we have to trust based on what somebody else wrote because we didn't have the opportunity to see. Because we didn't have the opportunity to believe. I mean, Jesus, you've heard the story. He could do something outrageous just, just to give this man some faith. Here, look, watch this. I'm going to float. Now go on about your way. And it's like, Jesus, he just floated. Sure, I guess I can trust him. He hasn't seen anything he, hasn't, he didn't watch Jesus turn water into wine. Jesus hasn't walked on water. He hasn't been resurrected. Like, like He's just believing in what he heard. And he said, that's what I want you to do. Just believe in what you heard. Just trust in what others have told you. you go on about your way. Your son will live. This man faced with an incredible, really an, an incredible kind of paradox. What do I do? I'm sure he looked over his shoulder, shoulders at his bodyguards and the soldier and thinking, you know, we could force him. They just grab him and take him. Then he has to do it. He decides to do what many of you have decided to do. The man believed the word of Jesus. He believed the words that Jesus spoke to him. He believed the things that he had heard. And, and even better than that, then he decided to put something, he decided to, to ha- take some action. And he went home. He believed what others had said. He believed what he had heard. And then he took some action and he went about his way. And I'm sure on his way home, he's just like struggling. Did I do the right thing? Like, you know, if I get home and my wife doesn't see Jesus, you know, there's going to be two deaths in my family. Like, this is bad. What's going to happen? And on his, his chariot ride or his horse ride home, you know, a two or three hour journey, halfway through, halfway through something happens. You see, this man decided to do, and, and really it's what churches have been tell, telling us to do for years and years. You probably heard this if you grew up in church, and if you didn't grow up in church, you probably heard some Christians say this and it didn't make much sense. But this man decided to walk home by faith, not by sight. And on his journey home, something fantastic happened. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with news that his boy was living. His servants, I'm sure, grabbed a horse because it's a long journey and they, you know, they would have been walking for eight hours to meet him. They took a horse and they met their master on the way. And it wasn't just news like, hey, he's still alive. No, it was news like, hey, your son's better. 
Like, we don't know how. He's, he's just better. He was dying, and now he's, he's good. And, and the nobleman, he begins to ask his servants. He inquires of his servants, like, like how did this happen? Right? When he had inquired as to the time his son had gotten better, the servants responded, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And immediately, chills ran down the man's spine. And wells, tears begin to well up in his eyes. And he, he looks over his shoulder, I can imagine, back at Canaan with this, this incredible smile and gratefulness. Because in that moment, the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, go, go about your business. I'm not coming with you, but your son, he'll live. And I imagine that, that just like, overwhelmed him. And if he's riding a horse by himself, he's kicking his horse and they're, they're like, they're in a hurry now. He's like yelling at his chariot driver, drive, drive, let's go. He's just overwhelmed with, with joy. And he gets to his house and he, he runs inside and his wife's like, honey, I've got news for you. I, 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 something incredible happened. Hey, wh- where's, where's the rabbi? And the guy with like this huge smile and tears streaming down his face, he didn't come. <laughs> and then he begins to tell his wife the story. And through his words and through his testimony, his entire household believed. I mean, of course they would. Who wouldn't believe in that moment? They believed based on the words of someone else. This was the second sign that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Let's look back at that phrase, walking by faith. It's it's an interesting phrase. It's, It's uh, in my mind, it's, it's a challenging phrase because in a lot of times it's, it's used just as an excuse. But, but here's what we need to know is that walking by faith is not walking by hope. Walking by faith isn't just kind of walking blindly, just, just grasping at straws. Walking at faith is walking, believing that Jesus is who he said he was and that Jesus did what he said he did, what he promised to do. Walking by faith is believing that you have a heavenly father because Jesus said, when you pray, refer to God as your heavenly father because God loves you as as if you're his children. So anytime you're confused in life, anytime you're confused about God, just remember, perfect heavenly father. Anytime you're confused about the scripture, remember, perfect heavenly father. Anytime you're confused about the world, remember, perfect heavenly father. Walking by faith is believing that Jesus has done some, some radical things, even though you haven't been able to see these radical things happen. It's believing that the accounts you read, even though you can't see it with your own, your own eyes. And it's not belief in a belief. It's belief in the words of somebody who saw and who heard and, and, and who witnessed these events and saying, I, I'm writing this down. Not so that you would know, but so that you would believe. So that you would see and you would hear these things for yourself and you would experience what I experienced when you meet this this incredible man, Jesus, this personal Savior. Walking by faith is walking as if Jesus asked us to walk in unconditional love for others as he had unconditional love for us. At at the end of his, his journey with his disciples, <clears throat> he's kind of wrapping things up, and this is at the end of John's gospel. He, he, he's, he already died, and he came back to life. <clears throat> Sorry, this is before that. I'm jumping ahead of my notes. He's looking at his disciples, and he says, hey, guys, I'm about to go somewhere. I'm, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to go somewhere else, and then I'm going to come back, and then we're going to leave again. And Peter's, you know, chopping at the bit. Can I go? Can I go? No, no, Peter, you, you can't go. Guys, I, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to co- come back, and then I'm going to go again. And Peter, stop asking. You don't, you don't even want to go. You don't even know where I'm going. 
But here's what I want you to do. Here's how people are going to know that you're my followers. Here's how people are going to know that I am who I proclaim to be and who I demonstrated to you that I was. By your love for one another. By the way you treat other people. By, by, by how you live. By your lifestyle. By, by how you show everyone else who I am. They will know you're my follower. And they will know who I am. And they will know that I am real and that the things I said are true and can be trusted because you are now ambassadors. You're ambassadors of a unique brand of love. Another's first love, of this kind of love that says, as I have loved you, so go and love others. Journey, this is the kind of love that changed the world. This is the kind of love that will change your city and your community and your families. It has done so for thousands of years and it can still do it today. It's how we live. It's our lifestyle. It's living in such a way. It's caring for people in such a way. It's believing in spite of all these other things and having joy and having peace and having contentment where others would look and say, how? How can you do that? My life isn't that way. I think my life's better than yours. How do you have the peace? How do you have the joy? How do you care? You're so unbelievably generous. Why? Because I met my Savior. And he changed my life. And he can change yours too. At the end of John's gospel, Jesus, at this point now, he, he died and was resurrected. And, you know, they had seen this resurrected Savior. And he's, he's having this conversation with the disciples. And he says something in, in this, this conversation with the disciples that really I think he, he's saying to you. And he's saying this to the disciples. He says, because you have seen me, because you have seen me, you have believed you, you saw me die, and you looked into, into this empty tomb, and now you're, you're, you're eating with me, and we're talking. Of course you would believe. I mean, we would believe, wouldn't we? If we saw him die, and the song come back alive, of course you would. He's saying, guys, you've seen me. Of course you're going to believe, and that's awesome. And then he says something to you, and he says something to you, and to you, and to your children, and to me. He says, but, but blessed, most blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, that's, that's where we are. We're not going to get to see the same things they did. We're not going to get to hear the same things they heard. But we can, we can see through their eyes. And we can hear through their words. John said, that's what I want for you. I want you to, to, to believe. I don't want you just to know. I don't want you to, just to, to, to know that I saw and that I heard, but I want you to know what I saw and I heard so that it would cause you to see and to hear and have a similar experience so that you would believe and that you would have life everlasting. He says, these things are written. These things, these signs, all these things that I've, like, I've been careful and I chose specific signs, specific events, specific conversations. These things that I've chosen are written so that you may believe, not just know, but that you would believe and you would believe in Jesus, that, that, that he would change your life like he's changed mine. And maybe for some of you, you've been, you've been like kind of grasping and holding, holding on to straws, just waiting for something to happen and waiting for something to change. And he said that they did change and, and they're written so that you would believe. So that you would believe and you would know who Jesus is and you could trust who he is. That he is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the Son of God. And I wrote all this so that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
that you would enjoy the same experience I enjoyed and that your life would be transformed just as my life was transformed. John says, that's, that's what I want for you. And for 2,000 years, people have been reading his words and their lives have become, been transformed. And for some of you, you just, but I just need to see because seeing is believing. John says, see through me. Hear through me. I'm not telling you something somebody else told me. I'm not telling you something somebody else saw. This is what I saw. This is what I heard. And it changed the world. And Journey, that's my prayer for you. Maybe for years you've been on the line and you're just not sure and it's just so hard to believe. It is. But these things are written so that you would believe. And I know your excuse, Jim, if I were there, if I saw Jesus do what he did, if I saw him walk on water, if I saw him die and then come back to life, Jim, I'd believe too. And I'd say, just read the book of John. And maybe you'll have the same experience John had. Maybe through his words and through his experiences, through him seeing the life of Jesus that way, you could begin to see the life of Jesus that way. And just like the nobleman, you can believe the rumors. You can believe what other people have said. So much so that you could trust Jesus. You could trust him with your life. You could trust him with your future. You could trust him with your sin. You could trust him with your forgiveness. You could trust him with your children. You could trust him with your finances. You could trust him with your marriage. And just maybe you'd experience life. Life everlasting. Life that begins now. Life that says, I'm going to live each moment from this day forward as if there's more to come. That's ultimately what I want for you. And that's why John wrote these seven signs that you would believe and to believe you'd have life. Heavenly Father, I thank you. <clears throat> God, I thank you for that God, John was, had this incredible foresight, Lord, to, to write down the things, the, the, these experiences, these events, these conversations, Lord. And that for thousands of years, they've been passed down from generation to generation to generation, God, so that here today in 2020, Lord, we could believe based on what John saw, based on what John heard. God, in that same experience would change our lives. God, for those of us who are struggling, for those of who maybe are on the fence of, of believing and not really sure we enjoy the experience of church, but I'm not really sure I can believe in, in Jesus because I can't see him. Lord, I pray today would be a step in that direction, Lord, where we begin to trust the words of someone else, Lord, even trust the words of John. And that maybe, Lord, through trusting in those words, we could experience something like John experienced and receive life. God, I pray you'd give us the wisdom to see that and the courage to begin to take that step. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.